This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The end of 2021 is also the end of a tax year. And the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is out with its naughty and nice list. And public officials top the naughty list with the number one slot going to former Governor General Julie Payette. And despite leaving the office in disgrace a little more than three years into her term, she is entitled to an annual pension of $150,000 and get this, as much as $206,000 in expenses every year for life and even six months after death. Uh, so uh, here are the numbers. What do you think of that? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Franco. Hey, thanks for having me on today. You're very welcome. Now, the argument with Julie Payette is, well, that's what governors general are entitled to. And so even though she resigned, basically was forced to resign, you know, without changing the rules or the law, like she gets what she gets. Oh, that's yeah, I think that's pretty crazy. I mean, at the CTF, it's our job to cover um, these uh, outrageous government perks. Uh, so we do that from coast to coast, all different levels of government. And let me tell you, the perks for a governor general may be the most unfair that I've covered during my time during uh, with the CTF. And that's really saying a lot. And we have to remember, she was the governor general for about three years. So she, and that means she was the head of state. So certainly she had time to to fix these types of perks and make them more fair for taxpayers. I mean, the one that really sticks out to me, you mentioned the pension, about 150 k per year. She only served for more a little more than three years, but she could still collect $4.8 million through that pension to the age of 90. So that is absolutely eye-watering. But let's remember, too, that you mentioned it, the expense account, $206,000 every year for the rest of her life. I don't know about you, but if the CTF, if they send me packing, there is no way that I could ever imagine to send them a six-figure expense bill every single year. That that does seem kind of egregious, that expense bill. But uh, let's compare it to the private sector. And, uh, you know, a lot of private sector packages are pretty eye-popping when you're talking about uh, CEOs that are given the heave-ho. And we saw this with Rogers, like just to get them out of the door, a lot of them have contracts saying they'll get, I think an average is three years of salary uh, if they're given the boot, but but they get these, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking that the government may have, uh, you know, said, okay, uh, we really want to get rid of her, so we better pay her. <laughs> well, again, I think I think these perks should have been reined in a long time ago, even even before uh, Payette's days. Uh, but but come on, I mean, serving for three years and then still being able to expend someone for two hundred six thousand dollars every single year. Remember, that's not three years of salary. That's two hundred six thousand dollar expense account every single year for the rest of her life, including six months after her death. Now, uh, maybe maybe there's a person in the private sector who's gotten that type of sweetheart deal. I haven't heard of it. Um, certainly, I think the vast, vast, vast majority of Canadians would, uh, if they even thought about going into their boss's office to negotiate that type of package, would probably get laughed out of the room. Um, now, you did make a good point, though, right? We should be comparing things to the private sector. Well, in the private sector, defined benefit pension plans are, are, are nearly unheard of. Uh, in fact, all types of pension plans, workplace pension plans, have been on the decline. In recent years, the vast majority of Canadians working outside of government don't even get a workplace pension, let alone these type of uh, <laughs> crazy types of perks of benefits. Well, absolutely. But but again, if you compare to uh, CEOs who get paid like, you know, 
many, many times an average kind of a salary and the perks they get, uh, I think you begin to to see certain things. Uh, but let's move along. You're also talking about MPs who voted themselves uh, two pay raises. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Christmas time, it's known as the season for giving, and our members of Parliament sure do love giving to themselves. <laughs> they, they've taken two pay raises during the pandemic, ranging from an extra 6900 bucks uh, for a backbencher all the way up to an extra $13,800 for the Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau. And, and our members of Parliament, they're getting set to gobble up their third pandemic pay raise come April 1st, 2022. Um, now, obviously, the, the people they represent in the private sector have been taking pay cuts. Many lost their jobs, unfortunately. Businesses had to close down. So we definitely should not be seeing our members of parliament uh, pocket not one, not two, uh, but potentially three pay raises during COVID-19. And when were these raises uh, voted in? Or is it is it the third year of a pay raise that they voted themselves two years ago, or are these re- more recent? No, so so the way that these pay raises go, um, every single year, MPs are, are eligible for an automatic pay increase. Now, it has to do um, with how the largest corporations' union settlements go on during the year. So it has it's related to that. But I mean, looking at the wage settlements with the largest private sector corporations does not reflect the reality of Canadians. Um, now, we do have to look. To the, to the history of this, right? Let's look at some precedents. Well, in 2010, the Harper government, understanding that they had serious budget issues, um, understanding the tough times, the 0809 recession, the Harper government stopped these pay raises between 2010 and 2013. And that's something that we should have seen here in Canada during the pandemic. Uh-huh. But uh, now with Justin Trudeau, and you also cite Justin Trudeau because the rest of us are going to see some tax hikes in the coming year. Yeah. What, what, like, what should we be uh, watching for? Yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, Trudeau is, is no stranger to the taxpayer naughty list. He was, he was on our list last year as well, and he makes it on this year for continuing to raise taxes during the middle of the pandemic. In, in, in 2022, we're going to see higher payroll taxes, um, which could be about $333 each extra for a worker and a business. But we're also going to see uh, carbon taxes going up. Uh, for the third time during the pandemic, carbon taxes will increase. And uh, get this your booze taxes are going up. So you had a tough day uh, <laughs> with a lot of stress during the pandemic, maybe at work, then you want to go home, pick up a six-pack, maybe enjoy a bottle of wine with your spouse. Well, you're going to be facing higher taxes on that purchase as well, thanks to these federal uh, alcohol tax increases. And and the leader of the opposition, Aaron O'Toole, doesn't escape your scrutiny, your scrutiny either. No, he sure doesn't. And the reason is, is, well, guess what? Fibbing, that's a surefire way to land yourself on Santa's naughty list. And uh, O'Toole's nose grew three sizes this year with his carbon tax fib. You'll remember when he was running for the leadership of the Conservative Party, he, he made a very clear promise to Canadians. He told us that he would fight carbon taxes, that he would repeal the Trudeau government carbon tax. But just before the last election, he pull, pulled a complete 180. He, he, he changed his mind. He flip-flopped and said he would put in a carbon tax of his own if he became the prime minister. Uh, but it's even worse than that, because even after he flip-flopped, he decided to play word games with Canadians, and, and he tried to claim that his 11 cent per litre of gasoline carbon tax was somehow not a carbon tax at all. Now, the CTF, we have a long history of fighting carbon taxes. We'll continue to fight carbon taxes. Uh, but if you're going to impose a carbon tax, at least have the spine to admit it and tell the truth. Uh, I'm going to give the numbers out again. We do have a few minutes left in this segment. Uh, if you want to weigh in on what you think about the people on the naughty list, anyway, when it comes to spending public money, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, I'd like to hit on a positive note. So the federal political parties took a lot of flack for availing themselves of the wage subsidy uh, that was made available for businesses to keep going in the pandemic, except for one. And that's the one federal party that doesn't want to be a federal party, and that's the Bloc Québécois. 
<laughs> well, you know, we did have to give kudos to the Bloc on this issue. Um, they were the only federal party in the House of Commons that did not help themselves to that wage subsidy meant for struggling businesses, not meant for political attack ads. In total, we estimate that these federal parties took $3.2 million through the federal wage subsidy, but not the Bloc. So, so they get some kudos on that this year. Well, uh, devil's advocate, you know, the wage subsidy was there basically to keep people employed. And uh, if, uh, you know, you consider the political parties, they're a, a charity, sort of. They're, you, you can get a tax receipt for making a donation and, and uh, charities really suffered. So uh, why shouldn't they have done that? That's a good question, and, and thanks for bringing that up. But the, the fundamental issue here is that political parties um, are, are already receiving special taxpayer treatment over and above charities, for example. So if you donate $100 to a political party, you get a $75 tax credit. Now, if you were to donate that same $100 to a charity, you would get a $15 uh, federal tax credit. So they are already receiving these massive special taxpayer treatments over and above what other charities get. But you even have more, uh, more for these federal parties. They get reimbursements from the taxpayer for campaign expenses to the political parties and to candidates. So you already have these federal parties that are raking in these special taxpayer treatments. Um, they should definitely not be helping themselves to this federal wage subsidy. But even on top of that, you saw um, party leaders such as Aaron O'Toole, who recognized that his own party should not be helping him themselves to this wage subsidy, right? He promised to pay that money back. Uh, he was right to make that promise, but taxpayers still don't even know if the Conservatives have fulfilled that promise and paid back the wage subsidy. Okay, let's hear from Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Thanks for taking my call. I wonder how this gentleman thinks that we're going to be able to pay for all of the expense that government has incurred to deal with the pandemic. And on the subject of climate change, he's completely out of step with where the majority of Canadians are on carbon tax. And lastly, the regime of no tax increases while costs continue to go up has led to significant infrastructure uh, deficits, both provincially and federally. Uh, and that's my comment. Okay, I'm going to let him respond. Thanks, Dennis. Uh, Franco? <laughs> Lots to unpack there. Uh, but number one, you asked, how are we going to pay for this unprecedented amount of spending? Well, I mean, it's only going to come, it's only going to come from the taxpayer one, day or, one way or another if these politicians don't rein in their spending, right? That's either through tax hikes today, taxes plus interest tomorrow, or through the inflation tax, which, is, which we're already feeling right now. And that's why we've been pushing uh, these, these politicians to rein in parts of their budget. Now, I'll jump to the, to the third part, which was about the infrastructure and spending like that. Look, we have to remember the context here. Even before the pandemic in 2018, the federal government was spending all-time highs, inflation and population adjusted. So <laughs> certainly with that massive amount of spending, we have to be asking ourselves, well, why aren't they delivering better services if, if that is the issue here? Um, and then I'll just jump to uh, I'll jump to the the second point about the carbon tax. I mean, the carbon tax is not an environmental plan. Uh, this is something that Aaron O'Toole himself acknowledged in the past. Canada makes up 1.5 percent of global emissions. So even if the Trudeau government brought all of our industries to a screeching halt, it still would have a very negligible impact on the global environment. But that would just impact or inflict so much pain on Canadian families and Canadian businesses. Now let's look to British Columbia. Okay, the Franco, Frank, Franco, we're, we're uh, basically out of time, so I need you to kind of uh, wrap things up. 20 seconds. Okay, well, uh, all I will say to that is, is what I said, and that's, look, the carbon tax, economic pain without the environmental gain. Okay. Franco Terrazano, thank you so much for that, and Happy New Year to you. My pleasure. Happy New Year. Okay. Uh, we've got to take another break, and when we come back, uh, let's get into the latest on Omicron. Uh, it is apparently presenting with different symptoms, but they are a lot like a common cold, so uh, I think we need a little bit of expert advice on that when we come back on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. With the Omicron variant, we keep seeing record-setting numbers of infections, and the authorities warn that they likely reflect a significant undercounting of the actual number of cases. The good news is that hospitalizations and deaths are not rising in tandem at the same rate, and there's some evidence that the new variant causes disease that's less severe, but the jury is still out and the symptoms are apparently different. You know, just in time for the new year, COVID has its own in and out list. And here's uh, from epidemiologist Dr. Abdu Sharkawi out loss of smell and taste in sore throat, runny nose, congestion, cough, and body aches. And if you have any of these, he writes, it's probably not a cold or flu. You probably have Omicron. Well, um, how would you know? Because tests are apparently uh, very difficult to access. So let us bring in our uh, trusted expert, Dr. Timothy Sly, who is an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, or the university formerly called Ryerson. Uh, Dr. Sly, Happy New Year. Thank you, Libby. Thank you. Uh, so... Uh, what is your reaction to that? I mean, if, if a lot of these symptoms, I mean, how would you even know? The thing is is to, is to just assume if you have symptoms like that, the uh, best thing is to say, I've probably got it. And in all likelihood, it's not going to be uh, severe. That is, if you've had the full vaccination and maybe the booster as well, because most people are in that category. It doesn't mean to say that you can't get really ill from it. We have people in hospital ICU and so on, but the vast majority don't have uh, uh, serious uh, symptoms at all. The big difference is coming between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. That's what all the clinicians will tell you, is that the people showing up are uh, uh, the unvaccinated, the ones that go on to do uh, serious disease. We almost have to look at this in a different way, Libby. This is almost, I think, I'm sticking my neck out of here, but I think this is the final major wave of the pandemic this virus is still in the in the in the seat but it's changing from an epidemic virus into an endemic virus uh, I'd be, let me stop you for a minute is that absolutely crystal clear or is that still a possibility Nothing in this uh, pandemic since the beginning for two years has been crystal clear. Nothing's been 100%. But all the signs are there that this is now spreading. As you can see, if you look at the, just go into the Ontario uh, dashboard, for example, you'll see the, the incidence rate. That, that's the ones that we know about. It's not even counting the ones that are, are mild and, and asymptomatic. The ones we know about are shooting up like a rocket still. And when this happens, we know that the virus is going to contact just about everybody, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, the boosted and the non-boosted. It's going to reach everybody. And the, the outcome will depend on the degree of protection that you have. And, of course, some people, unfortunately, are want to be vaccinated but they can't be or or they have been and their immune system is shot or something so we have to protect those as well but this is a change from the from the epidemic virus where it's it's maybe spreading faster and we can try and control it to the endemic virus remember we've had four coronavirus strains with us for decades and they've been part of the of the couple of hundred viruses that cause the common cold four of them and I think this one's heading in the direction that it'll become the fifth one. And at that time, well, the population will be um, generally immune to some degree. They'll either be immune to having become infected and recovered, or they'll become immune to having been vaccinated a couple of times and then maybe boosted every year, just like we do with influenza. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues that people have, and particularly if they've got small children at home, they're saying if if you or any one person in your household has any one of these symptoms, um, you have to isolate. I mean, I look at these symptoms, and I mean, personally, it's ridiculous. I have a, I have a runny nose every day of my life, so that's discounted. But again, I mean, that seems to be asking a lot of people. 
Yeah, it is. And, and, and we would normally, you know, a couple of months ago, we'd say, oh, better go have a test just to be sure we know what we're doing. Now the testing is sort of partly dried up in some locations or it's heavily delayed. It's going to be not just the next day, but it's be almost a week now before we get the results. Really? Yeah, but, wow. Well, I didn't some, know that. In some cases, it's several days now. It used yes. to be sort of the next morning, you'd know. The rapid tests, of course, would... would Certainly something we would like to have been seen brought in months and months ago. Uh, and as you see, they're, they're under short supply now simply because of the demand. Remember that we don't know about it being milder. Uh, but if it was, even if it was, say, 15% milder or, or 25% less severe, we don't know this, but if it was, if the, if the rate of increase is four times going up, then you've lost all of that advantage. It's been swamped by the fact that the numbers are just increasing exponentially. So we, so we just simply assume that it's going to be there. Um, of course, if, it, if you get serious illness, you need to take yourself off to the hospital anyway. But uh, you, we can't rely on even the numbers being reported because of the testing uh, deficits and delays. And so what constitutes, if those are the symptoms, what constitutes serious illness? Is it still a, 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 an issue where you, you basically can't breathe? Oh, yeah. The people who are in serious illness, so they, they transfer onto where you get a, a cytokine cascade. In other words, let's not be technical, where you're getting a, a, a very powerful uh, immune response centered on the lungs and, and the lungs of course is where the people end up on respirators and the Cadbury. That still happens but of course it's not happening anywhere near as much simply because the vast majority of people have had vaccination to varying degrees and this is the very difference between this wave and the other waves. But I think because it's spreading in this way we, we will all be as the health minister for Germany said about two months ago, he said, look, in the, in the early spring, the only Germans will be those who've, who've been infected and recovered or those who've been vaccinated or the ones who, who didn't survive at all. I mean, everybody will be in the, there was one of those categories. It's a little simple because you get some people who are going to be difficult to be vaccinated anyway. You know, they get immune, immune uh, suppressed diseases and things like that or cancer therapies. But the, the general spirit of that is still the same. So I think if we stand back, basically this, what may be happening is probably the better of, of, of several bad outcomes. We wanted a virus, that, a strain of virus that could spread and dominate, spread more rapidly than the existing one, and fingers crossed, one that doesn't produce quite as much uh, bad symptoms. In other words, uh, the whole population will become drenched with this virus and become partly immune to it. Much like, uh, you know, when, when colonists in the in the early days came over to North America. They brought with them colds and coughs and flus and so on that the North American First Nations people had never encountered. And it was lethal to them. Well, the, the Europeans were already sort of partly immune to that because it had so, it had so often it was very mild symptoms. And I think this is the direction it's going in. When will we know for sure if it actually causes disease that's less severe? I mean, because we know that the evidence from South Africa, their population is very different and a lot younger. Mm. So when will yep. we know? Soon? Uh, I think it needs, we need to sit down and look at a lot of the data. Remember that because we've got about 80% of the, of the people in Ontario have had at least um, partly vaccinated and about 76, 77% have been fully vaccinated. Uh, it's difficult to find equal numbers that we can begin to see, uh, compare them all coming in. We need a large numbers to be able to make that. But if you talk to a clinician, the clinicians are saying, yeah, we see lots of people who've been vaccinated and they have the mild symptoms, as you just mentioned, much like a common cold. And then we see uh, the ones that are serious and you go down the list, they're almost all unvaccinated or not fully vaccinated. So that, that evidence is, is what we're dealing with at the moment. A little more time, we'll find out. Yeah, South Africa was, in one hand, you're getting much a younger age group, 
the median age is much, much lower than us. Uh, and, and secondly, their population has been uh, much greater affected. In other words, they had natural immunity because there have been so many cases in the community. And thirdly, it was an area where at that time of year, a lot of it was um, open air. You know, it was sort of temperate climate, even semi-tropical climate. So we didn't see as many people indoors and crowded. So these things mean that we can't really compare apples with oranges. Uh, Dr. Sly, final question. Israel has started trials of a fourth shot. Uh, what do you think of that? On the one hand, I can see why they would do that, and if they've got the money to pay for it and the enthusiasm. On the other hand, I see, look at the rest of the world, is still basically on its early stages. 15 to 20 percent of some country have seen a, a, a dose of vaccine. And as long as they remain unvaccinated properly, we will see yet more variants coming along. And what we don't want to see is a variant that not only spreads rapidly, but also is more lethal or evades all of the vaccines. We don't want to see those variants. So we really have to ask whether it's worth giving people fourth shots or shipping those vaccines off and start spreading it to South Asia, South America, all of the Africa, Middle East countries that haven't really begun vaccination yet. Okay. On that note, Dr. Timothy Sly, thank you and Happy New Year. And to you, Libby. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. I will be off for the rest of the week. Jane Brown will be here. Everyone, Happy New Year. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It is Monday, the last Monday of the year, and I'm so glad we have the Zoomer Squad to assess and maybe reassess the main issues affecting Zoomers and what will be on our plates for the coming year. There is COVID still, of course, and the various governments' responses both on the health and the economic fronts. And in the midst of this, a sense from some that older Canadians have been neglected. And how many of our 2020 issues have been resolved or are on the road to resolution? I am, of course, thinking specifically about long-term care. We have a new minister here in Ontario, Rod Phillips, who is getting high marks from stakeholders so far, but is it enough? And is the death and carnage among our elders already forgotten? Let's begin there. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'd like to welcome David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer of CARP, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Hi, everyone. Hi. Uh, So, David, let's begin with you and with long-term care. Uh, Has that whole chapter kind of gone to the back burner? Have people forgotten? I don't know that it's been forgotten, but obviously, if you look at the headlines every day, everybody's obsessing on Omicron right now. Uh, I think Phillips is quietly doing some necessary things in the background, and there is an election in June and I think they are going to want to put forward some uh, tangible results and outcomes that they've achieved. We'll see whether that happens. So I, I don't know that it's been forgotten, but it certainly isn't in the headlines. Uh, and, uh, Bill, what do you think? Oh, I agree with uh, David. It's uh, disappeared uh, from the headlines, but uh, Minister Phillips has uh, has started some good activities. We're expecting uh, after the new year to start hearing even more specifics uh, from him. And uh, if we don't, we'll be disappointed because he started off uh, well setting uh, five or six uh, short-term uh, goals in terms of, of staffing, uh, having PPEs available, and uh, enforcing the regulations uh, 
that are already there for home care. If he follows through as he started to, then uh, a good a good start for the year in that area. But uh, uh, unfortunate that that has to be our our focus uh, as we end the year. Daryl Brooker, uh, what's your sense of it as an issue among the general public now and going forward? We have an election in Ontario in June. Well, I don't know that it's a, a driving political issue at the moment, but uh, what I would say is it's a foreshadowing of the issue agenda to come. Because as we know, the population is changing dramatically. Uh, we have more seniors in Canada than we do. We have kids now. And when you look at the year 2030, it's the year that uh, every single baby boomer in the, around the world is going to be retired. They're all going to be turning 65 at minimum. So uh, what we're talking about here is the emerging agenda. And what we saw as a result of COVID was just waking people up to the fact that we have so many people who are in that category of being in long-term care. And it's raising the question as to what our long-term care environment is going to be, because it is going to be one of the dominating issues over the next decade. Uh, David, you had some thoughts about the recovery, uh, if and when it comes from COVID, and uh, sort of Zoomer's place in that. Well, I think there's some big unanswered questions going forward. I maintain that COVID uh, is going to cast a shadow over everything, even the recovery, because I don't think it's going to be an issue like, uh, you know, you broke your leg, they put on the cast, they took off the cast, and it's over. I think it's going to overhang in a lot of ways. Number one is in the, um, you know, what is the state of uh, how many cases do we have? That's not going to stop overnight. What do we believe about our uh, healthcare professional experts? And I think they're going to be struggling to repair some reputational damage. What do we know about our healthcare system overall, um, of, which was not ready to deal with COVID, but which revealed other serious cracks in the system and then how do we get back to normal what is normal and what do we keep from pre-covid and what are the new habits we've learned during covid and i think all of those every single one of those is going to be a topic that we're going to be talking about next year because we have to watch closely are the zoomers the leading edge of change uh we're quick to jump back into the way things were or are we going to retain some of the the new stuff uh, that we learned, um, are we going to be cautious? What's the economy going to be like? So Zoomers are going to be the eye of the storm in a lot of ways. And I think that there will be a big overhang, psychologically at least, of COVID uh, throughout all of next year. I don't think it's going to go away. Uh, Bill, what's your sense of that? Oh, it's not going to go uh, away at all. Uh, the uh, There's huge concern continuing from uh, from our CARP members uh, across the province who are who are who are torn between uh, trying to get uh, more more active and being finding themselves locked down uh, gain it's going to be a uh, a, a problem that uh, continues uh, for them and and the and the repercussions the uh, the mental health issues that have come out of isolation uh, the loss of of loved ones uh, uh, during uh, COVID and a continuing uh, a concern and fear that it's not all over uh, uh, yet. I think most of our members were expecting that by this time this year we'd be back to uh, something that was uh, uh, was nearer what we had seen before, a reasonable facsimile at, uh, at least. And now they're, they're feeling disappointed. Oh. Uh, I hope we didn't lose you there, Bill. Uh, Daryl, my sense, certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, when you had, I mean, public officials referring to 60-year-olds as elderly in some cases, that, you know, that it has set back uh, the case, if you will, of Zoomers, uh, you know, a new vision of aging has been set back by all this. Well, I think we don't really have an image of aging. I mean, one of the the issues that we're going through is the population is going through dramatic transition, dramatic transition in terms of age patterns and in terms of the structure of the population, but very few people are actually recognizing that it's happening. 
The median age of a Canadian today is 41. As I said at the start of this conversation, there are more people over the age of 65, 65 years of age or older now than there are under the age of 15. But, you know, we understand the younger generations in exquisite detail. We have Generation Y, Z, X, even add whatever initial you want to or a letter from the alphabet to what this uh, detail would be for younger generations. But for the older population, it's just seniors. And we know it's an incredibly diverse population. So I think one of the things that we're going to have to start having is a more nuanced conversation about exactly what the senior population is. A senior who's 90 is not the same as a, a senior who is 60. So why should we call them the same thing? Uh, well, yeah, or uh, a boomer. I mean, David, uh, at uh, I know you have been making that distinction for a very, very long time. Well, I go, I go two steps. I completely agree with uh, what Daryl said. I would question one thing he said earlier, and that is that every single uh, in the year twenty thirty or whatever, they're all going to be retired. That's not true. The age of retirement at sixty five is a fading reality, and there's going to be multiple versions of retirement going forward ranging from I'm never going to stop working full-time to hybrid to side gigs and side hustles to semi-retired to retired but volunteering that that whole uniformity of kaplunk 65 you're retired that's already vanishing uh, from view but that reinforces what else uh, Daryl just said is that there are You're segmenting this. There's about 7 million Canadians over 65. There's 17 million Zoomers over 45. And so it's not surprising that we will see multiple uh, segments, even within ages. And I would agree completely with Daryl said, but I go a step further. Yes, a 90-year-old is different than a 65-year-old, but within 90-year-olds, there's going to be segments. There's going to be people who are 90 acting like they're 70, and there's going to be people who are 90 who are aging the same way as people aged in the 1950s, and both will be true at the same time. So the nuance that um, Daryl is calling for is, is, I can't endorse it strongly enough, I agree completely, it's going to be necessary but right now all the politicians kind of have this image of the you know helpless uh, 65 year old who needs the kindness of strangers and that's going away uh, rapidly right, you know right before our eyes Bill, um, you have a sense throughout all this that uh, the needs of older Canadians have been inc- ignored by politicians. Yes, uh, it, it has been. Uh, you look back to the uh, uh, to the uh, speech from the throne from the federal government, uh, the plans that uh, and issues that have come out of the uh, the provincial uh, government, and they have been overlooked. Other than the concerns around uh, uh, COVID, you know, in the in in the last speech from the the throne, and and then the financial update, the only mention federally of Older Canadians was in relation to uh, uh, was in relation to uh, COVID, and uh, you know we have been trying to make sure that the the politicians understand that uh, although health care is important, uh, financial security is really what's worrying older Canadians, and that's been uh, that's been totally ignored by by all the parties. Daryl, um, in in a sense, in terms of the way the general population is is viewing our economy and our recovery, if that's what it is from COVID, uh, would you say that they're cutting the government a lot of slack, or or that's ending? No, it's ending. I mean, one of the things about COVID right now is that uh, the level of urgency that people feel around it, even going through what we're going through with Omicron, is very different than what it was at the start of the uh, of, of the pandemic. Today, the level of emotion around the topic is less intense than it was back then. We're learning to live with it. And in fact, when you ask people now how long they think the pandemic is going to go on, I mean, when we first started asking this almost two years ago, people would say, you know, three months. Today, they're saying more like three years. So, you know, the, the, the level of intensity is going down relative to this issue, which is opening up space for discussion about other issues. And one of the things that we're going to turn to at some point is what the role of government is going to be going forward. We have one orientation, which is a big spending, big government type of orientation to how we solve problems. 
problems, and you can see it in the signaling from the federal government in particular, where they're saying, hey, why don't we take this mechanism that we created to deal with COVID and start applying it to what we see as other urgent issues. One of the things that I know about this type of a dynamic is it always, just like a Newtonian physics, creates a, an equal and opposite reaction. So what we're going to be seeing over the space of the next 18 months, two years, as we move towards the next federal election, is the creation of whatever that opposite and equal reaction is going to be, and whether or not that that is going to create an opportunity for a change in government. At this point, we don't know. Um, David, uh, what's your sense of what our demographic or demographics want in terms of more financial security? Well, I think they're looking for some concrete steps that will put more dollars in their pocket is one thing, of course, and that gets us into the intricacies of, you know, pension reform and benefits and who gets them and should they be clawed back and so on. But I think that the real insecurity is on rising prices and inflation and the overall health of the economy because it disproportionately uh, affects people on fixed incomes, even even decent fixed incomes. If you see that you have no more income coming in and prices are going up, 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 it creates a lot of uh, uh, anxiety. Um, and I think the real test coming forward, and maybe the Ford, Doug Ford will be the first one up to bat, is uh, I do think, in answer to your earlier question, Libby, I do think that Canadians tend to cut uh, government a lot of slack, and I think that we've proven so far that we're willing to listen to uh, statements of intent and good slogans and not really be too concerned with uh, outcomes. And I think COVID cured that in a, in a bad way because we saw death totals and we saw case totals when we saw ineffective measures. And one of CARP's big thrusts has been to shift the debate to concrete, measurable uh, outcomes and not to allow any wiggle room for high-sounding phrases. And um, we'll see whether we can make that stick and we'll see whether we can get them to pay attention. Daryl, um, I want to get to the impact of rising prices. So on the one hand, of course, it does affect people on fixed incomes more. But I'm also the other side of the coin that's a big, huge national conversation is the high cost of housing. And, uh, you know, a lot of older Canadians are house rich. Yeah, well, what we're dealing with right now is a, a really interesting change in the economic uh, metrics, I would say, of what you know wealth is and what incomes are and what the possibilities are for uh, financial security going forward. And we've got uh, a large percentage of the residential real estate, um, particularly the most desirable residential real estate, in the hands of people who are older. Uh, and uh, they are, as you said before, real estate rich, particularly in the most desirable neighborhoods in the, in, in the country. Um, and they're moving into a stage of life, and, and you know one of the assumptions, what really uh, I think really throws the, uh, um, a lot of our assumptions into question is just how little people know about how our population is changing, and some of the crazy you know, kind of assumptions they have about uh, about how things are moving forward. But one of the assumptions is that you know people are who are in these older uh, older homeowners are simply going to abandon their houses and they're going to move into some sort of collective housing. That's not been the pattern. People basically age in place. So that one of the questions that we're going to have moving forward economically is how we're going to take, how older people are going to be able to take advantage of the fact that they sit on all of this wealth, but not necessarily on top of all of this cash. So they tend to be asset rich and cash poor. So moving forward in an economy like that, these are people who have a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, 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 locked up financial resources, but they're not necessarily in the consuming part of their lives. And our economy is really dependent on consumption, at least it has been since the end of the Second World War, and probably back to the time of the Industrial Revolution. So one of the largest parts of our population, and it's growing bigger every day, is a non-consuming part of the population, at least not at the, at the level they were when they were younger. So how, all, how is all this, uh, this, this circle going to be squared? Very difficult, but I hear almost nobody talking about it. But I don't. I don't agree that they're at the non-consuming stage. They're consuming different things. Uh, the aging in place market that you just referred to, which I couldn't agree more. You're absolutely right. Is already a multi-hundred billion dollar market and growing exponentially. And they have the money and they have the desire to spend like crazy in that sector. 
Um, so, yes, you're right. The, the categories may change, but the market value, there was an article in one of Canada's leading marketing magazines a couple of weeks ago on where have all the young adult consumers gone. Oh, my gosh, what if the entire market is older people again? So they are consuming, and that's why agree they with need more, more money. <laughs> couldn't agree with you more, except the people who are making products and services aren't making them for them. I mean, well, they're, the they're in for a rude awakening. They're starting to feel it now. Yeah, well, and this is exactly that. I couldn't again. I couldn't agree with you more. This is going to be one of the big transitions that we're going to go through over the space of the next twenty years. I agree. The people have to start waking up to the idea that actually older people are active. They're consumers. They're diverse. Uh, they're going to be the biggest segment of the Canadian population. So, uh, you know, when you talk about the speech from the throne from the federal government uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, and somebody noted that they didn't really talk to, to seniors at all. You're gonna you're, that that's not going to be the luxury that governments are going to be able to afford going forward, yeah. uh, because this is and, and they're also more much more active in terms of voting. Well, yep. I, I, absolutely. That that lesson seems not to dawn on them until the the very cusp of an election. But Bill, the other side of that, when it comes to health care, long term care, uh, our governments sometimes pay lip service that they're beefing up home care, but it's like nowhere near enough. For people who want to age in place and who have every intention of doing that. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, less, although we talk a lot about long-term care, and governments certainly do, uh, there are less than 10% of uh, older Canadians are in any kind of long-term institutional care. The others are all still living in their own communities. Now, they may have moved uh, out of the house into apartments or into senior, uh, senior apartments, senior living uh, situations, but they're still living in, independently. And they're the majority, and the government is is ignoring them and their uh, issues, and that's why uh, CARP is really focusing on the issues that uh, that they have and the need for for uh, for care and for understanding they're there. You know, one of the most uh, visible examples is at the moment is uh, governments are putting a lot of money into uh, into encouraging uh, workers to work in long term care facilities, and what that's doing is just robbing Peter to pay Paul and taking those workers out of the the home care and community care uh, industry and they're totally totally missing what's really happening in that uh, in that area and the the uh, the economic uh, clout of uh, what some people are calling the silver economy who have uh, who have uh, uh, care, have, have reasons to, to care to look for home care, and it's not even available if they want to spend money on it. Daryl, um, how does this uh, health care, home care thing fit into your view of things? I think it's absolutely huge. It's going to be one of the biggest questions that we're going to be facing as we move into not just the later part of this decade, but especially into the next decade. Um, and uh, the idea that... Um, we're going to have to accommodate the, the delivery of services to the way that people want to live, which is essentially age in place and mostly in the homes that they've lived in for the for the better part of their lives, is something that hasn't really occurred that uh, that much to government. So it's great that they're working on the long-term care facilities and helping the people who are the most vulnerable, but the vast majority of people who are aging, are, as, as we've all, three of us, I think, have said, are aging in place, and there's very little talk these days among governments about what they're going to be doing in terms of facilitating that possibility for people. Hmm. Um, what other things, David, do you see as our top concerns in 2022? Well, I go back to healthcare overall. Um, just before COVID hit, CARP had started a campaign um, to fix our health care because Canada spends near the top of OECD countries on health care. We spend a fortune as a percent of GDP, and our results are always in the bottom quartile, if not worse, sometimes rock bottom. So uh, we have this kind of polite dialogue going on that's become largely a myth that we have this wonderful health care system that we can't have two-tier, which we already do have, um, and we're all kind of pretending that everything is fine. And it's not fine. And sooner or later, some uh, government will have to pay a price for not being able to deliver what other countries are delivering. This is the key. Other countries that are single-payer systems, countries that are 
seen as even more left-wing, let's say, or collectivist as we are certainly uh, compared to the big bad United States, are delivering better health care outcomes, shorter wait times, more access, quicker access to specialists, quicker access to leading-edge drugs and therapies. Canada is lagging with all the money we're throwing at this, and the health care system is, frankly, a mess. And uh, I think that's going to become, and that plays into what uh, what uh, Daryl Randall have both been saying, as this mar- our market, if you will, our cohort gets bigger and bigger, and gradually politicians may understand, hey, wait a minute, this is where all the votes are. The urgency to fix health care hopefully will increase, and CARP is certainly going to push it as hard as we can. But right now, um, I think the politicians are very complacent about this. They fall back on, uh, you know, nice, fine-sounding verbiage, uh, but they don't produce measurable results. And I think CARP's experience with long-term care in Ontario, we were instrumental in getting a minister and a deputy minister replaced who weren't performing. Uh, We're going to be carrying that same attitude forward and uh, hopefully getting better results. Hmm. Uh, So, Bill, what are your priorities for the year coming up? Well, I certainly agree with everything David has said, and, and CARP will be uh, renewing uh, the fixed health care uh, campaign that we started just before COVID hit. But the other area that's of real concern uh, to our members and to older Canadians uh, right across the province of the country is pension protection and investor uh, protection, which are being uh, uh, be also being ignored. Uh, pensions have to uh, be available to the people who have invested in them. Uh, we want to have a, a a priority for older Canadians to get their uh, pensions out of companies uh, before uh, before, especially before the tax man uh, uh, gets his, which hasn't been happening. And and uh, we need protection for. Uh, investors one of the you know one of the good things about covid is more and more old canadians have started to uh, uh, work online work digitally use the internet the downside is they have been much more uh, vulnerable to frauds and scams uh, especially uh, around their uh, investments and other other finances and this is an area that has to have more uh, provincial and federal attention well yeah and scams in general have mushroomed during the pandemic. Uh, Daryl Bricker, I'm going to give the last word to you. What are we looking ahead to in 2022? Well, I think, you know, all the focus is going to be on the pandemic and how well that's going to be managed. But as I said before, some of the emotion has come out of this. and People look at it as a long-term issue to manage rather than just an emergency. And as a result of that, what you're going to start seeing is that the important is going to start pushing aside the urgent. And uh, the important things are some of the issues that uh, the other two guests were, were talking about. But I think the focus is going to increasingly turn on to the economy uh, because we've gone through a massive, massive restructuring of the role of government in, in uh, society, a massive restructuring of the role of government in the economy. And somebody's going to have to pay for all of this at some point. So uh, I think what we're going to start seeing is that equal and opposite reaction starting to emerge, a greater focus on the the economic consequences of the pandemic, and more of a, a, I guess, debate about what the future is going to be. Okay. Uh, I think uh, a lot for us to think about uh, as we have the last week of the year. Thank you so much, Daryl Bricker, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. Thanks, Libby. Thank Happy you very much. much. See you next Happy, year. Happy New Year. See you next year. Thank you. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, the taxpayers' list of naughty and nice. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.